those are like hundred year old institutions that accumulated that brand and built that brand over decades or centuries and coming in as you know a startup to try to disrupt that world requires a brand that can stand up to the guys that have been around for 100 years Welcome to another episode of Behind the Brand, where we delve into the stories of innovators and entrepreneurs shaping the Canadian business landscape. Today, we have a guest with us and a friend of mine from Calgary Tech, the CEO of Good Lawyer, Brett Colvin. Brett is at the forefront of revolutionizing how businesses approach their legal needs. Good Lawyer, with its fractional general counsel service, is changing the game for high growth scale-ups and mid-market companies in Canada. Instead of the traditional clock-watching approach, Good Lawyer offers a dedicated legal partner proactive risk management, and fixed monthly fees. Brett, with his wealth of experience, is here to share the inspiration behind Good Lawyer, the challenges faced by businesses in the legal landscape, and how they are paving the way for smarter, faster, and more cost-effective legal support system. So buckle up for an insightful journey into the legal industry, the innovative solutions Good Lawyer brings to the table, and the entrepreneurial spirit driving it all. All right, Brett, good for you to be here, here at the NEO campus. First time I met you was when I came out to Calgary, this is pre-Neo, and we were at the Wild Rose Brewery, I think. After the talk, I asked you what you, what you were doing, what you're up to, um, and you said you were building the Skip the Dishes for lawyers. How far along in the idea were you? And that was probably 20, early 2019, I think. Oh, I mean, we were at the very beginning. You had a name though. We did. I mean, I <laughs> hilariously bought the, the domains for Good Lawyer in first year law school on a total whim. <laughs> I, I assumed I would open a law firm and it would probably be called Good Lawyer. The name actually came from a very specific moment. I went up to U of A for both undergrad, did a business degree, and then stuck around and did law school up there as well. Spent a good seven years up in Edmonton. But I had a coffee guy from my business days. There was like a mall that connected the law school and the business school. And I had my go-to coffee guy in there for most of my undergrad. And then I was gone for a bit and I came back and, and saw him and this guy named Mo ran a little coffee shop and he remembered me. Shout out to uh, Mo. Shout out to Mo for sure. But anyways, we're having a nice chat and then he asked me why I'm back. And I said, I was in law school. And this like jovial guy got all serious and looked at me and he said, be a good lawyer. Be a good lawyer. He said it twice. And I literally went back to contracts class, was like just in my own world <laughs> yeah. and, and bought a couple domains. And then, you know, a decade later almost, uh, turns out it was actually pretty useful little exercise. So thank you, Mo. Do you get a lot of compliments on the name? Yeah, the name's pretty good, I think. Definitely not one of the obstacles that we're overcoming right now. We're pretty satisfied with the name and being very intentional with our IP strategy to protect the brand and, you know, max that component out because in the legal services world, brand is hugely valuable. So for us, that's been something that's been important from, from day one. Which is probably surprising to a lot of people when you think of like powerful brands. It is true though, um, because of a lot of the firms that are using different law firms are using them because of the brand behind and the reputation that comes with that firm. 100%. When it comes to the brand in legal services, you know, most of the firms that the business world has heard of, and you know, I, I know you've worked with a number of them in the past, those are like hundred year old institutions that accumulated that brand and built that brand over decades or centuries and coming in as you know a startup 
to try to disrupt that world requires a brand that can stand up to the guys that have been around for 100 years. Um, so that has been a huge motivation and priority from a marketing perspective and you know, an ethos that we have at Good Lawyer to you know, keep building that brand you know, day by day and trying to really showcase that there's a different way for lawyers and businesses to work to, like, together that you just can't find within the traditional model. You mentioned early in, in law school, you, you bought the domain because you thought, I'm going to have my own firm. Were you always someone who was going to, like, you, were you very deliberate in going to school knowing that you were going to start your own company someday? Like, is that entrepreneurial bug kind of in you from, from very early on? Or is this something that you, you know, you went out and you started working and you're like, okay, I just can't work for other people. I want to, I want to run my own thing. Definitely. I would say I've always been an entrepreneur. I started selling golf balls when I was four years old, getting my brother to find them. He was my supply and I would sell them, you know, out of the backyard when we were out in Kelowna at my uncle's place. So I've always had that entrepreneurial itch. I've always loved business. The more random thing was actually going in, into law. You know, I did my undergrad, took all the prereqs per my, my dad pushing to do the accounting thing, realized I didn't want to do the accounting thing and maybe would have started a business at that point. But my dad passed away, sadly, at the end of my undergrad. He was pushing law really hard. And frankly, at that moment in time, I, I wasn't ready to kind of go out into the real world. School always came pretty easy and I was just keep mom happy, go to law school. That seems like a productive step. And next thing I knew, you know, I was in the world of law, getting recruited by, you know, big national law firm. I'm sorry to hear about your, your father. Okay. What was it about law that really drew you to it over something closer to, to business like finance, accounting, sales, marketing? I think it was a combination of being strong academically and having written the LSAT on a whim during business school. My dad's best man was a lawyer or is a lawyer, very successful out in Kelowna now. And so that was kind of always around, you know, not like all the time, but it was Uncle Barry, very successful. And yeah, my, I think my dad, who was a stockbroker, that's what I wanted to be originally was a stockbroker. But I saw the ups and downs of that during his life and he didn't want that for me. So he was really pushing this law thing. So it was always kind of in the back of my mind. As I learned over my, you know, four and a half years in the big shop, I love taking risks. I love making decisions and just providing sort of guidance and risk assessments wasn't enough. You know, I was doing deals with clients and like I wanted to be part of the deal. I didn't just want to pay for the deal. I wanted to do the deal. So that kind of hunger to always to eventually build my own business, it was always there. And like there was no moment really ever in the firm context where I thought I would be a partner one day. I always thought I would cut my teeth, get the expertise and the credibility and then go and start something. I did not think I would start a startup originally. <laughs> and so going through the process of becoming a lawyer, I, I, I recall listening to this uh, podcast, uh, Malcolm Gladwell was, was doing, it's about how in the LSAT it optimizes for people who are good at being fast, but not necessarily good at being lawyers. Having gone through the process of becoming a lawyer, what do you think needs to change about that process? Like, what do you think they're, do you think they're optimizing for maybe the wrong thing? And in Malcolm's case, in reality, you actually don't need to be like super, super fast. It's actually better to be prepared and it's actually better to be right than it is to be quick. What do you think that if you could go back in time that you think that we should change about how we're creating lawyers? Oh, I, yeah, that's a big question. I think that the whole model for 
assessment, qualification, you know, the education obviously is completely busted. Uh, starting with the LSAT, you nailed it. Whenever I have, you know, an aspiring law student reach out to me and look for tips, <laughs> I tell them, I'm like, when you write the LSAT, write it as fast as you can because it's going to fly by. And I, I think that was one of my advantages was I can write a test really fast, but I also get bored really easily. And a lot of the kind of drudgery, as one of my first professors called it way back in law school, was super challenging for me. And that has no sort of application or relatedness with the LSAT or 100% final when you're in law school. The other thing I, the other problem that people talk about all the time is that when you finish law school, it, it's so different than like going to med school and then doing like a really extended residency. Law school, you come out, you know how to read cases, you know how to write tests, you know how to write papers. You have no idea how to do a deal or really draft a contract. And the expectation and sort of the unspoken deal between the big firms and the legal and education system in Canada is we're going to train them how to actually be lawyers, but we're going to get first dibs on them too. So when you're going through law school, they have this recruiting system they call OCIs, on-campus interviews. And only the biggest firms are invited for that. And it leads to this world where all of the students, including me when I was in law school, without any idea as to what it's actually like to work there or you know, what you'd be doing even, are clamoring and competing to get those interviews. And if you don't get an interview, it feels like you failed. Yeah, I, I think the law schools need to do a way better job at preparing folks to actually be practicing lawyers and have more tangible skills coming out of law school after three years. Like you don't, you don't need to read cases for three years. There's more tangible things that are actually gonna be part of your day-to-day -day as a practicing lawyer. And I also think that the law schools need to broaden the horizons of students and make sure that everybody's very aware that there are alternatives inside and outside business law that aren't at the big firms. And, you know, this past year, we attended a couple of the OCIs, so to speak, but we were the only company there that wasn't a national law firm or a, a large regional law firm in some of the, some of the cities. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I felt it was the same way when I was an undergrad too. There was a few big firms that were just like black holes of talent. Like it just drew everyone into them and everyone was like, oh, did you get an interview? And oh, oh my God, I heard they're, they're, you know, they're probably going to get that job and creates this kind of competition internally, which I, I'm a big fan of competition. I think it, it helps you make, make you better. But I wonder if we're, we're underestimating just the value of just getting hands-on experience, period. Like whether that's at, uh, and a good friend of mine I grew up with, he ended up working for Bennett Jones eventually, but his first, his first job out of law school was volunteering at the White Buffalo Youth Lodge. And he's got people coming in, you know, single mothers who are fighting to just put, you know, food on the table for three kids at home because their ex isn't paying alimony or, you know, someone who's got a whole bunch of criminal charges and ha just trying to get their life together. And he's working on these cases kind of for free. Uh, and so they, I think he did that for a, a year or two. And that basically gave him so much experience and credibility, having no resources at all at his disposal. He didn't have this massive firm, didn't have this massive brand behind him, but he really got to like kind of get in the trenches, I guess. Solve real problems. 
Yeah, and before he went to go and work for a larger firm, and then and then he's kind of gone on and done a bunch of stuff. He's actually written a couple of books now. Shout out to Patrick Trumpy if you uh, if you uh, if you're listening, Pat. Yeah, come check out Good Lawyer, my friend. You nailed it again on that one. The students that came out of law school who were actually competent to do legal things, like far and away, were the folks that were really deeply involved in at U of A. It was called SLS, Student Legal Services. And I did a little bit of that. Frankly, it was, you know, something to put on the resume, you know, in that competitive environment. But the folks that like really got into it on whether it was the family side or the criminal side, they were basically practicing law under supervision, but they were flexing their real legal muscles in some cases for three years. And so when they were done law school, they were equipped in the corporate setting. It didn't exist as much, you know, and I'll give a shout out to my old firm, BLG. They have at least at the time I was there, uh, BLG Venture Clinic, where it also opened the opportunity for students to get involved and support early stage startups and stuff with you know, some basic kind of corporate work. So I think getting your hands dirty as early as you can is definitely the way that you can kind of propel your career faster and faster. One other just funny anecdote, they changed the rule after my first year in law school because it was so outrageous, but they started bumping up when you could do the OCIs so originally it was just like second year law students and then it went to first year law students because they wanted to get in there earlier. And in no, my, it's high school students. Yeah, like in my first year of law, Josh, who you know, our COO, he got hired in like his second or third week of law school. He had not done a single task, but you've met Josh, you know, he's pretty exquisite and they're like, we want you. So you're three weeks in and you've already got a job lined up that is supposed to be you know, where you spend your career. And you've done that in the first month of law school. Like it was, it was pretty wild. Yeah. And I wonder what kind of strange behaviors that creates. You graduated from law school. You got, was it, did you go straight into BLG? Yeah. I summered at BLG and then articled there. And but you were deliberate though. If you already kind of knew that you wanted to do your own thing eventually, that must've made it a lot easier in some, oh, easier and harder, but easier to know what you need to absorb from the people around you? Or did it make it actually harder because you're like, I just don't want to be here? I definitely don't think it made it harder in that sense. And I had a lot to learn. And frankly, I really loved working with a lot of my colleagues. I had a ton of amazing friends, including Josh, who's now <laughs> instrumental in what we're doing at Good Lawyer. You know, if I reflect back, summer was a breeze. My primary objective over summer and mission was to secure sufficient table space at Kaylee's during the World Cup for partners. <laughs> I was, you know, the the big soccer guy in the group. So that was bestowed on me and I, I took that job very seriously. Sounds like at least a one year <laughs> project. It, it was, it kept me busy for a good chunk of summer for sure. But that was like a bit of a mirage because you come back for articling and you would appreciate the grind. I know you like the grind. Articling was, it was a new level in certainly in, in the work environment, kind of like you, not to quite the same sort of mountaintops, but I played competitive sports my whole life and like at very intense levels. So, you know, working hard was kind of baked into me from early age, but articling was, was truly intense and deep, deep relationships were forged with my fellow articling students, many of whom are on the good lawyer cap table now, but it was, uh, I guess, intensely challenging but also ultimately rewarding year because you do level up in terms mm -hmm. of your skills when you're working that hard 
you develop these great relationships with people that are going through that same grind with you. And then you get hired back and you go and find a home, so to speak, within the firm. So that was good. And my second year, you know, getting up to speed was challenging. Again, even after articling, like I was in financial services and commercial real estate and they don't use the articling students as much. So I was hired into a group, but I still didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) You know, I'm like law school, articling. Now I'm into a group and I'm like, having to find mentorship because I was a pretty lost puppy for a while. That's not an unusual scenario. You really have to like go out of your way to like get someone to care enough about you that they're going to teach you the ropes because they don't have any built-in mentorship systems within the firm. You get paid to bring in work and you get paid to bill work. You no one's getting paid for mentoring the next generation. But that I was- think, But I think everyone knows though, and, and this is something that surprises me that if you arrive at a firm and kind of no matter what company it is and you look around and you're and you look and say and find out and it doesn't take very long to know who's who's the rock star here who's the most respected person what are they doing why are they where they are how did they do it and then you you can either learn from observing or you can just walk up to them and say hey how did you get to where you are what what are you doing differently or hey can i buy you a coffee and maybe they don't have time for like an hour a day of mentorship but Chances are the people who got to the heights that they got to got there because they had a lot of help from other people. And usually those people recognize that they need to pay it back, you know, or, or pay it forward, whatever, however you look at it. And a lot of times they enjoy doing it too, because they feel like they're contributing to the kind of the next generation of people who are coming up. Did you, were you able to get some of that as you kind of got into your mid-years at the firms or or you got completely shut down? (laughs) No, absolutely. I found that 100%. I think there is this additional sort of layer or cloud kind of overlaying that scenario being this intensity to hit a target for everyone, including like the most senior partners. And when that target is quite literally hours build, the kind of way, a war of attrition. Definitely. The way that you like perceive your time yeah. changes, it alters, you know, like my whole life was running in six minute intervals all the time, even really? on weekends. And so trying to carve in that mentorship opportunity and yeah, like you're dead right. That's what you have to do. And that's exactly what ultimately I did. I found, you know, a senior associate in my group, Nolan Ritzel, who is also now a good lawyer. Love Nolan. Finally was just like, dude, we're good. We got to be friends. I'm going to figure out ways to add value to you, (laughs) but you got to teach me how to do this. And then there was also another partner in particular that, I mean, I got mentorship from a lot of different places. Like, again, I I don't, the people are good. I think the firm structure in a lot of ways is broken, but like good people that cared about me and invested in me. But one woman in particular, Maria Dorkson, she, uh, she was kind of known as like the mom of the floor and took the time to teach me when I really needed something. But again, like hard to get her time, very challenging. So getting a guy like Nolan, who's much closer to me in terms of age and seasonedness, that was really the key. And frankly, he taught me almost everything I know about doing big financing deals and that kind of thing. So I got a two-parter for you. First is, what was the, the moment when you realized there, that there was a problem in, in terms of the way that, that legal work was being done? And then what was the jumping off point for you to say, okay, I see the problem and then now I have enough conviction that I'm going to go out and try to solve it? I'd say I first sort of my spidey senses were tingling in first year law. Um, of law school. Of law school. 
Jesus. So you're, you're just starting and, and you're already like, oh, this is a broken system. Oh yeah. There was something, there was something fishy in the air. Like it was, it felt weird. And it is like, it's kind of like this giant sort of cult. I got there and, and it just, it, it was, it felt weird. And frankly, I think a big piece of it was before law school, like kind of in, right, right in between my undergrad and going to law school, I ran a painting franchise and I loved it. I, all I could think about was paint all the time. And uh, did that with uh, a close friend of mine and like had an absolute blast building this painting franchise and like building a real business. Like we had like 20 guys painting for us at one point. It was, we were cruising, had a blast. But a key thing that I learned while I was running the painting business was how to estimate. And then I got into the world of law and I'm like, nobody estimates anything? Why not? It was just like, well, this is just the way we do it. So like, don't fuck with that. Like, this is how, this is how it is. So just like, do it how it is. And I, that, that struck me as early as, as law school. And then the conviction built slowly over time. I think I started to, I don't think I, I started to dig into startups and what they were all about, listening primarily to how I built this on the train. I went on secondment and worked in-house at a big financial institution for a year in Vancouver. And I took the train to work every day and listened to podcast after podcast after podcast and just started connecting dots. I'm like, that seems actually a marketplace model. That seems kind of applicable to this world that I'm slowly becoming a part of. So that's where the idea for the startup sort of germinated was that time in Vancouver. But the final conviction, the, the nail in the coffin was, uh, I've told this story before, uh, one of the senior guys coming into my office one day, kind of my boss and slamming the door because I was Mr. Ideas guy at the firm and it was not appreciated. And just saying to me, Brett, keep coming up with your ideas, just keep them to yourself. I know that he felt like he was trying to do me a favor, but for me, I was, I, you know, I thought you've been throwing all the ideas in the garbage, but like now I, you don't even want to hear them. You don't even want to hear the ideas. So for me, that was kind of the final, final straw and, you know, raised a little bit of capital and left the, the firm probably about six months later. So were you kind of moonlighting at the same time or were you just basically like, hey, pull turkey, I'm going to quit this and then I'm going to start working the other one? Or was there, hey, I'm going to work on good lawyer kind of evenings, weekends, or just working at a big firm just doesn't, you just have no time for it? Definitely didn't have a lot of time for it. Certainly starting to scheme and, and think about what this might look like and what I would need to do it. Like, raising a little bit of the early capital so that, you know, I could eat after I left my job, you know, started tucking away savings kind of in preparation. But yeah, I mean, we got started for real when, when I left uh, early 2019 and it's evolved a lot since then because as I'm sure you experienced building Skip versus Neo, the first rodeo is, <laughs> it's pretty wild. So t tell us about the problem that Good Lawyer's solving and then yeah, and how has it evolved over time now that you're, you know, about five years in now? Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the problem, or my, at least my awareness of the problem is a lot more nuanced and evolved today than it was in the early days. In the early days, it was pretty simple. Billable hours seem stupid, and we should be able to fix fee quote most services. That was it. And we thought that it would make perfect sense, and... We could do it for all areas of law right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. It always seems so simple. Oh, yeah. You know, we were like, oh, yeah, Airbnb for legal services. Boom. <laughs> and like, that's what the first platform more or less looked like. But over the years, as we, you know, we've gotten smarter, we, the first big sort of 
don't know if I'd call it a pivot, but refinement was recognizing that we were most successful with business services as compared to family or more personal services. And that also aligned beautifully like with my passion. I feel like a pretty thoroughbred entrepreneur. Like I've always had that kind of gene in me. So it was an area that I was also really passionate about as opposed to divorces and like criminal mat. Like entrepreneurs are my people and like that made a lot of sense. So you were giving fixed quotes on like a criminal defense? It, you know what's funny though? The criminal lawyers actually are some of the best in the entire profession at providing fixed fee quotes. Criminal lawyers provide more fixed fee quotes than most of the areas of law. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Why is that? Because like new evidence comes out and you're like, oh, this is going to be way harder than I expected. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that it, it does vary a lot, but I think there's a concern for a lot of criminal lawyers when it comes to collecting. So they like to get paid up front. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of lawyers get, like to get their retainers up front, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff within criminal law that is, you know, I don't want to say it's routine, but it's kind of, it's very common, you know, yeah. like a misdemeanor, simple, like, like, there's like, are you getting a fixed fee for the murder trial? Like, probably not. But, you know, if you have a, a disorderly, like, they, they know how to do that pretty, like, straightforward. Um, so, then, so then how are you matching up supply and demand then on the business services side? Narrowed it to business, got even smarter and perhaps took advantage of a bit of a tailwind back in kind of 2021 with like startups exploding and just like focusing laser focused on, you know, we, we can serve businesses of sort of all flavors at this time because of the talent, but focusing laser focused on helping startups. That was the world we were living in. We were super relatable, you know, they're innovative by definition. So that was sort of our first wedge into a, a growing and very narrow niche startups in Canada. And from there, that kind of eventually emerged into, you know, those startups growing up and becoming scale-ups and us serving them, which then unlocked new doors with much larger organizations that back in the early days didn't feel like something that we would do for a really long time, if ever. So definitely have experienced that evolution and finding out the root cause or, you know, a better understanding of the pain points that businesses, whether it's a startup, scale-up or enterprise, have when it comes to their legal needs and you know trying to fill this gap now with our fractional gc offering that is you know not the same level of commitment and duration to hire as an, a full-time in-house counsel but also something that fits way better than full external where you've got a lawyer at you know a big firm or wherever with a hundred clients huge hourly rates being able to find that gap in the middle with highly specialized talent or extra horsepower, but on that part-time, more flexible basis has, as it seems, been very valuable to businesses, but also is creating this opportunity for lawyers to truly practice in a different way with a lot of the security that they're looking for, whether it be an in-house or a private practice role. Yeah, it seems like there's a, there's a number of different gaps. There are startups or small businesses that can't afford to have a lawyer on payroll, period, and they, they need help. Then there's people who have a lawyer on payroll, but maybe not a senior lawyer or like a true GC, and then they need access to that talent from time to time. And then there's people who have a GC on staff, but then they still need to use external a lot, and then that's expensive. So there's like being able to have a GC or external on demand and not have to pay GC and external rates. I think is is definitely something that I've seen as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is still in my view early 
today's good lawyer. You know, we've been building it now for close to five years, but there's still so much learning and growth in our future as we continue identifying more of the problems and figuring out, you know, more interesting solutions to them. I think why I've been bullish on good lawyer from day one, even in the very broad marketplace days is just the lack of innovation in this space and where I saw sort of fundamental core issues with the law firm business model. No good lawyer would ever recommend to their client to set up a business like a large corporate law firm is set up because it doesn't make any sense. It drives weird incentives, limits true innovation because you can't benefit from the future state of the firm because you don't own a piece of the firm. You have a lease on the profit share. So that's why I've felt that there's an opportunity to build something different while also the whole business is predicated on the assumption that we're always or for the next century going to need good lawyers to, to support businesses. And it's not just going to all be automated away with AI, that you're still going to need these very smart and dedicated humans to flex their legal muscles and support businesses in a unique way that, you know, I think as our world continues to become more and more complex is really important for success. How is technology being applied? I was curious, and it wouldn't be a podcast in 2023 without talking about AI. Naturally. So, uh, Bought that domain this year too. <laughs> Goodlawyer.ai. You got it. Wait, someone told me that the, uh, is it Antigua? Uh, is AI? Like, it's like we're .ca in Canada and Antigua is .ai. That's like actually the country's oh, domain. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Well, apparently they are making bank right now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Like, but as soon as ChatGPT came out, everyone just rushed and Antigua is just swimming in cash now. With, with AI, like how do you see, you know, what, what's your non-defensive answer to how AI is going to be applied to the legal industry? Oh, it's going to be applied in like countless ways and it's going to be a huge game changer for, I think, the industry as a whole. I guess I got a few comments on that. One, again, the assumption is that you're always going to need lawyers, but there's a lot of work that lawyers do that is incredibly inefficient. Um, for us, that starts with the business of law, actually running a business as an independent lawyer, sole practitioner, which is very core to who we serve mm -hmm. on the lawyer side. Like That's who we're all about. We're not plugging into big law firms. We're recruiting lawyers that have you know left the big firms or left the in-house role that want to stand up their own business. But running a small business is, comes with it all sorts of challenges. It's more complicated than a lot in the legal context because there's a lot of additional rules and you know, professional sort of obligations. And then practicing law is also like quite a hard job. So trying to make it easier for those independents to run their business is really where our focus has been from a software perspective and layering in AI to continue expediting basic business tasks is, is where we're starting. But then at like a more general level, there was a time where lawyers wrote every contract with ink on a scroll and then we got typewriters and they got a little faster. Then we got computers and email and word processors and oh, all of a sudden we're way more efficient than we used to be. And then you've got companies like Thomson Reuters who we're, we're partnered with who have billions of dollars invested in producing the best precedents and templates and, and you know context. No lawyer today starts with a blank page and writes a contract. They all start with a precedent. Where I see AI getting layered in is just another evolution and a very powerful one 
but in the same way that you know having a precedent expedites you from having to <laughs> write the contract on a piece of paper which my granddad did for me once which was quite hilarious ai to me just is something that's going to give lawyers way more leverage superpowers to practice more efficiently and just do a better job because of the amount of information that can be processed and then getting the lawyer's insight and ability to communicate that into the business where it's needed. But the final thing I'll say on that is there is so much unmet legal need. And I'm not just talking about the sort of legal aid crisis for you know low or mid income that can't afford lawyers. I'm talking about within businesses. There is so much unmet legal need within businesses of all sizes that I don't see AI as a threat. I see it as an opportunity to make legal more important and more valuable to the businesses that it's serving. It seems to me that it'll, it'll probably impact consumer first, people who just need a basic consent form drawn up. Like it'll kind of chip away at all those, like all those will kind of go and get automated because you can just go and say, hey, like draft me a consent form for this organization and this purpose. And then it's done in like two seconds. Normally you might have walked down or got a friend or... You just go to Law Depot. Yeah. Download a template for think, free or for five bucks. And now you just put it in a chat GPT. In both scenarios though, if there's not much risk with the thing you're doing, you don't really care about it that much. That's a great way to do it because getting somebody to sign something is better than nothing. But if there's a material risk, the fact is like you don't know if that consent form is effective or not. Yeah, I'm surprised a lot of people don't look at legal as insurance. Like to me, that's how I look at it. Like I don't like paying for car insurance, home insurance, life insurance, but I still do because in the event that something goes wrong, I want to be covered. And that's very much like that's the purpose that law serves in many ways for, for businesses and for people. Is it like, listen, yes, if everything goes well, this, this piece of paper will never be used. But... <laughs> If things don't go perfectly, then you're, you're covered because you already have everything written out and agreed upon. Yeah, I mean, definitely there's a... It seems like common sense, but I'm just saying for, for a lot of people, they just don't... They, they see, oh, I have to pay a, a lawyer five grand. And I'm like, well, if you don't pay them five grand, you may have to pay a million at some future date that you don't know about. Yeah, or you'll lose this right in your business or this deal will fall through or, or whatever. There's definitely a huge component of CYA or insurance when it comes to having... A tight legal function. So that is obviously a key piece is, you know, managing risk in a similar way as you would with insurance. But I do think it goes further than that. And I think folks who really leverage legal in their business are able to unlock opportunities that they didn't even know were there. You're in a highly regulated financial services space. Having a deep understanding of what the rules are, where there's opportunity, where there's like mitigated risk, maybe some risk, but you've got an understanding of like a sort of an attack angle that you didn't see before that could have serious product ramifications or business ramifications. I think legal is underutilized as a strategic. Well, even even in our company, like we, a lot of people are don't even understand how we could even exist. They're like, wait, you're a bank, you're not a bank. How are you able to collect money? And how, how can you do credit cards if you're not a bank? And like, how is the customer protected? How are we protected? That's all held together by a legal framework that protects everyone involved. 100%. Between us and the banks and the, and the card networks and, and the customer, like everyone is Your discovered. whole business is very intimately built into a less an optimized regulatory framework that allows you to do some things and doesn't allow you to do other things. And, you know, 
I was chatting with very early stage employee of a very large fintech in Canada last week who was talking about how they broke the rules for like a year intentionally because they wanted to ask for forgiveness instead of permission. And that was like a very calculated risk they took mm -hmm. because if they didn't, there was a good chance the business wasn't going to be able to make it through that period. And when they came back around and like got in touch with the regulator and shared all the information, they were able to show data that like the way that they did it doesn't harm the consumer, which is the whole point of having the regulator in the first place. So again, it's like, you know, there's opportunities in that legal framework that if you're, if you're running a painting franchise, probably don't need to worry too much about strategic legal sort of initiatives. But if you're running a company like Neo Financial, yeah, <laughs> you better a different game. Yeah. Totally. Have, you, have you guys raised a venture? So we have raised a few rounds of capital, family, friends, pre-seed, what I like to refer to as our sneaky seed last year. And we do have like some family offices and a very small kind of venture fund. What was that process like? Like, I guess, because a lot of this is seems like it's coming up as an issue again about, and this was just publicly talked about how the Canadian pension plan, how little it invests in Canada. They may say, well, Canada's a small economy relative to the US, but even when you kind of do like for like and you do it proportionately, like we're still not really investing and betting on our own economy. We're investing proportionately more abroad than other uh, national pension funds. Many startups go south because they're, you know, or, or raised from American VCs. Most of the VC capital we've raised at NEO has been from American VCs because Canadians just don't typically place big bets on companies. What was that experience raising capital like for you guys? I, I'd say that we raised capital in definitely not like the the expected path or, you know, we didn't raise capital from any of the VCs locally or in Toronto or anything like that. Was that deliberate or, or was that just you tried and weren't able to and then you just kind of went a different path? I think it was, I wouldn't say we tried a lot, but we definitely tried a little and had meetings with, you know, a lot of the shops that people would be familiar, familiar with here in Calgary. I think something that was unique about our last two rounds where we did get like, you know, outside the friends and family circle was that both rounds were sort of spearheaded by lawyers on the platform. Oh, right on. So that was kind of how we kicked off both rounds. And if I'm just being frank, the venture folks in Canada that we spoke with, like either they didn't see how we could disrupt and change law because they have so much interaction like they're they're so close to the problem we're solving it's like they're almost too close to like see how it could be different and it's been working okay for them and our valuation was too spicy right that was that was another piece um you know we had a bunch of committed capital out of valuation that you know i think at the time was certainly like in the range and we were you know i think very thoughtful and strategic about how we priced ourselves but ultimately we priced ourselves every round and so it was a different dynamic than I think most of the fundraisers are where the startups waiting for term sheets. We were bringing a term sheet and saying, you know, making it very binary, you know, for better and for worse, we did, you know, a little bit more of a, an ad hoc and less, less of a traditional institutional sort of pre-seed and seed round. But I think I was also able to maintain at the governance level, complete control over good lawyer. And, you know, I think we're well-placed to go more of that institutional route when we you know start thinking about a series a and it was also you know i think one of the cool things about the city we're in right now calgary 
is there are a lot of folks with money on the sidelines that can be drawn into a good story and, you know, a good sort of vision on where you can take a company. And I think we took advantage of that sort of little bit of a cowboy approach to, to raising our initial capital. So where should people go and find you? Is it goodlawyer.ca? Is it goodlawyer.ai? Yeah, uh, you can check us out online at goodlawyer.ca. And uh, best place to reach out to me is on LinkedIn. And that means if you're a lawyer, that means if you're a business, and that means if you're a consumer, anyone who really needs anything kind of related to law. Anybody that's tired with the status quo, as far as it goes with big corporate firms, whether they're working for them or being serviced by them, we play super nice with them too, because uh, we're trying to fill a gap. And so for anybody listening that knows a good lawyer or knows a good business that would like to test the waters with something new, reach out. Awesome, man. Well, we're big fans of what you guys are doing, big champions cheering you guys on and uh, appreciate you taking the time to come by. Appreciate that, man. And, you know, final thing I'll say is love what you guys are doing and appreciate what Neo has done already to put Calgary on the global startup map. You guys are are changing the dynamic of the city, uh, I think more than probably anybody else right now. And uh, just keep it up, man. Thank you for tuning in to Behind the Brand. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about Neo Financial, visit us at neofinancial.com. Behind the Brand is a production of Neo Financial and Media Lab YYC, hosted by Jeff Adamson. Strategy, research, and production by Keegan Sharp, Alana Tefelchuk, and Kyle Marshall.